Blog Talk Radio. Quarters. Security, condition three. GQ, security three, sir. General quarters three. Intruder alert. GQ three. Intruder alert. Although I actually don't consider it an intruder, if the guest already has their own cushion here in Madame Perry's salon, their own place to sit, and. Uh, even come with their own snacks sometimes. So that is not an intruder. Hey, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Madam Perry Salon. I am your host and cruise director, Madam Perry. Oh, you can call me Jennifer Perry. I want to say, first of all, again, uh, we've had some fantastic, this whole year has been fantastic on the show, and I've got so many more subscribers and listeners and great guests, and um, on a lot of shows, had some very nice sponsors, and it's all thanks to you for listening, subscribing, downloading, and telling your friends about it, and that helps me to get more exceptional guests like I have to coming up tonight. But first, let me go over a few things recently. I've got some specials for you um, coming up. You know, a couple of weeks ago on the show, my guest was David Fishoff. And many of you know, David Fishoff is like uber sports and entertainment agent. He's the guy that came up with the concept of the Ringo Starr All-Star Band and pitched it to Ringo. You know, he made he went ahead and, and made a whole commercial about it, had it done in a studio, and then pitched it to Ringo with that, saying, see, wouldn't this be cool to hear? And, uh, and also he has, uh, he created the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, So this, where, which is where my point, and yes, I had one, lies here, and that is uh, David Fishoff wanted me to remind you that in September, the next edition of Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, you know, that's where you go and there's like a, a main featured band and then several other celebrity musicians who are there to coach you or counsel you. And they help you, they help you develop your technique, you work up some songs, and then you do a live show in a club or a venue like House of Blues or Whiskey A Go Go, someplace like that. Uh, in September, it's the Judas Priest edition. And, but some of the, um, some of the counselors were, well, like Rudy Sarzo from Quiet Riot and Ozzy. I think he's on tour now with Guess Who. But he, you know, he's a bass player. He was on our show back in September. Uh, his brother, Robert Sarzo. And I forget all the other people who are counselors, plus the people in Judas, the guys in Judas Priest. But if you sign, if you register and attend September's edition of Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, the Judas Priest edition, and you tell them that Madam Perry sent you, or you heard about it on Madam Perry's salon, David Fishoff himself will give you a guitar worth $700. He did not divulge the names of the guitars. I may, he may have different brands, I'm sure, with whom he works. However, just say, sign up for it, and you get there. And if you, if you told them when you were registered that, you, that Madam Perry sent you, you will get a free guitar valued at 7 or $750, somewhere in that range, he said. So don't let that kind of deal pass you by. And let's see, what else? Um, coming soon, we have um, Lita Ford, who's quite the shredder. She was the queen of metal, one of the first shredders, and she's also worked on that. Also, Kat Canovas, who you might have seen on Dr. Oz talking about one of her books, um, Surviving Cancerland. That's the book that she gave me when I first met her a few years back in New York at Book Expo. Um, but she's got a new book coming out on dreams and diagnosis, and she'll even, she'll even analyze your dreams right here. But tonight is a guest that we were lucky to have back in – by the way, you can always call in and talk to the guest, and the number to call in, toll-free in the continental U.S., is 
And actually, I've already got people on hold waiting for tonight's guest. That's how cool this person is. Um, it's his second book this year. He's a, a true crime journalist, TV personality, true crime, extremely prolific true crime author. And I have to say, he is my favorite male true crime author. Uh, actually, he's, he is my favorite now, completely. Uh, and he's also going to be on a new TV show, on a new channel, the Escape Network, called Deep Undercover, about the high-stakes world of undercover operations by the police and the FBI. Uh, so please welcome once again to Madam Perry Salon, Michael Fleeman. Michael, come in, get comfortable. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to have you here. Um, just happy to have you back in the series to have two books. You know, I always say the thing with like, my top three favorite true crime writers, I tell them they don't write fast enough for me. And yet you just really came through for the fans and put out two this year. That's love for your well, fans, Michael. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been great. These are two wonderful stories, and um, you know, you, I, I kind of base my books on on the stories, and and if they're good enough, and and detailed enough, and compelling enough, and uh, these two came along, you know, bang bang, and so I was able to do two books. Well, I remember when you were on, I think it was back in January, February, we were discussing your book, Crazy for You, and that was about the Rusty Snyderman murder case that happened right here in Atlanta, Georgia. And, yes, um, yes, and that was, uh, oh, yeah, wait, the Andrea Snyderman, she was convicted of Andrea uh, Snyderman. perjury and obstruction of justice uh, in, her, in her husband's uh, murder, and many people thought she should have been uh, convicted of murder, but uh, she's now... Out, she served her time and and uh, uh, is a free woman. Yeah, and then of course, um, her her lover, uh, Hemi Newman, I was convicted of the murder of Rusty. Is that that's correct? That's, and that's I correct. guess he's still twice. in the big house. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> twice. still in the big house. Yeah, where he will be. He had and two trials. Yeah, two times, uh, two times he struck out, and you know he he was the lover, or well, alleged lover. Andrea Snyderman um, still denies that they had mm-hmm. a relationship, despite uh, a lot of evidence mm-hmm. to the contrary. And of course, the the case, uh, the allegation was that she seduced him to fatally shoot her husband um, to get him out of the way and to uh, to get a lot of insurance money. And uh, Hemi Newman, who was her boss. Uh, was convicted uh, of murder, and she was not. And he had pleaded insanity and said that uh, visions and spirits had driven him. He's an undiagnosed bipolar. Um, and the the court rejected um, the insanity defense, which is a very, very hard one um, to pull off. Uh, which I... I believe I told you that in this case, although I might normally look, you know, kind of look a little funny at that, the insanity defense. However, I told you, and since you you were here, you know from whence I speak, that anyone who could commit a crime of this nature in daylight in Atlanta, Georgia, in a public place, you know, a place with a lot of witnesses around, potential witnesses, and think that they can escape during morning rush hour traffic in Atlanta, I would think that would be a that would be a shoe-in for an insanity defense because you, can, you can't even get to work on time, much less try to escape from a crime scene. So, yeah. Well, it was the, uh, that, that I think the traffic, actually. Criteria. He was able to disappear. What do you call it? The circle? The What, what is the, the highway perimeter, that goes around perimeter. Atlanta? The perimeter, yeah, thank you. And, the perimeter. and he sort of got lost in the perimeter amid all that traffic, and it, it, it helped him. You know, it wasn't just a public place. He, he shot this man in the parking lot of a preschool with a bunch of children around. Yeah, which is yeah, which is horrible enough. But now your new book, your new hot, your I called it your hot new book, The Black Widower. Uh, tell us what this is about. Well, this is the story of Harold and Tony Henthorne. They're a married couple. They have a little girl. Um, they lived in uh, Denver, and on their wedding anniversary, they had a very uh, romantic weekend away they went to the 
Stanley Hotel, which if anybody has read or seen The Shining, that's the hotel in The Shining. It's a, a, a stately, old, very expensive place now to stay, and they spent the night there. And the next morning uh, they scheduled a hike, and he had made reservations at a steakhouse uh, for later. They had a babysitter watching their kid back in Denver. And uh, they took this hike um, up to uh, a point that oversees all of uh, Estes Park, a spectacular fall day. And they get to the ledge, and according to Harold, um, he gets a text from the babysitter um, informing them about their daughter's soccer game that they had won. And he's reading this text, and he looks up, and he sees a blur, and Tony, his wife, slips off the cliff, 50, 100-foot fall, and crashes mm. down yeah, to, to the bottom. And he makes his way down to the bottom, and he f- finds her there very, very injured, as you might imagine. And he calls from his cell phone, 911. And the book begins uh, with his distress call to 911, pleading for help, saying that his his wife is uh, gravely injured from this fall, and and he needs some help. And what transpires is the investigation showing that things are not as they seem. And the question becomes very quickly, did she really fall or did Harold push her? All right. So there, and there's the whole thing. And then let's see, So because he came into um, a lot of money with yes, life insurance. Yes. Tony, on his wife, yeah, she was a so, doctor. An ophthalmologist, and she mm-hmm. was insured health, uh, $4.5 million he inherited, he was uh, able to get. All right, to start with, since we already have someone calling on the line, I don't want to keep them waiting any longer, uh, because I know how, how I'm certainly looking forward to talking with you, so this, let me just click in. Hello, welcome to Madam Perry Salon, you're here with me and Michael Fleeman. And what is your name, please? Hi, Jennifer. This is Robert Taylor. Robert Taylor. Hi. Yeah. Good Hi. Good to hear from you. I, I, I had a question for Michael. <laughs> okay. Okay. Michael, I noticed that you deal uh, primarily in high-profile crimes. And I was wondering um, about how you gather information. Do you have... Any inside tips from uh, law enforcement uh, that the general public uh, isn't privy to? And do you have a a good rapport with law enforcement? And do you have certain individuals that you rely on to give you some of these inside tips and information? Yeah, I I've done I've been writing these books for 15 years. Um, I've done about 11 or 12 books, and at each book. Um, I usually work pretty closely with somebody on the law enforcement or somebody's on the law enforcement side, whether it's uh, the detectives on the case or the prosecutors, um, but almost always somebody. And it, and it depends on at what stage the case is. For instance, in this book, the trial was still going on uh, when I was writing it, so the federal prosecutors would not talk to me, and they're, they're very reticent to speak. It's hard to get federal people. Um, but I did right. talk to a coroner in this case who was uh, involved in the case, and which is, you know, uh, on the law enforcement side. Um, you know, I, I, I neither, uh, you know, uh, idolize them nor demonize them. I, I look at them as people who um, are part of, uh, part of the story, um, professionals who are working towards solving the case. Um, in this book, um, there was some very, very good police work involved, and then there was some very, very, when you talk about later, some very, very bad police work. Um, and, you know, I don't really uh, come to any judgments. I just try to lay out uh, how it is. Um, but over the years, um, I've developed a lot of respect for law enforcement, especially when you get to the level of detective um, 
uh, in cases like this, you have to be really, really good. Um, you're, you're juggling a lot of different, a lot of different things, and and I have really the highest respect um, for the folks who who are working on these cases. And and like you said, they're they're often high profile, which means, you know, they're doing their work in the public eye. You know, I I, I get up in the morning, and I write for a couple mm-hmm. hours. No one no one sees me work. You know. Um, but these folks now are out in the field. They're collecting evidence. They're doing witness interviews. You know, people can almost watch them uh, in real time. And so, uh, the work has gotten um, even harder. My my first book was called "If I Die." It was a case um, uh, in Las Vegas, and Phil Ramos was the lead detective there. He's since retired. We're Facebook friends, and we keep in touch um, over the years. So, um, in terms of uh, inside information. Um, for everybody, I mean, you know, with journalism, I, I often do go off the record with people um, to kind of help right. guide me. Um, I don't want, you know, sometimes they would look, I can't tell you this officially because, you know, certain ethical constraints or whatever, <clears throat> but if you write that, you'll be wrong, or maybe you might want to go in this direction, or they'll help me find documents, um, that sort of thing. You know, it's it's never as sexy as, oh, they're going to you know, reveal to me some amazing inside information but you know, right. I, I try to work and my approach is always look let's let's tell this as truthfully and as fairly and as completely as possible and 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 help me anyway in, in that regard and so that's usually the relationship i have well i i love the id channel <laughs> i'm a big fan and i would love to see uh, if i can if i can uh, get access to the uh, escape net network i don't know if i can get it in my area, I'm not. But I'm going to look into it. It sounds like a very interesting show. Yeah, it's a new undercover. channel. I actually barely get it here in Los Angeles. Um, or you can go on Netflix. I just did a, a documentary about Robert Kardashian. Um, and oh, okay. you go on Netflix. That, that one's on Netflix right now. Yeah, I'll check that out. Hey, you're well, thank on, you very I much. I see you on TV a lot. I saw okay. Hey, Robert Taylor, thank you for calling in. Oh, you're quite welcome. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Goodbye. Robert's one of our he's he's like family here. He's one of our favorite callers. Um well, it was a good question. He's an author really and, and, yeah, he he's a he's a pretty savvy guy. Uh so thanks. Um so anyway, yeah, you know, my um like I told you my my first husband was a, a homicide detective and we met working in the police station, so yeah, you're you're exactly right. I'm so glad you brought that up because they do. They work um, in the public eye under a lot of pressure, and I know what it's like to get those phone calls, you know, uh, and, and during the night, you know, to get up, to go to get dressed, go to a crime scene. Because um, he always had his clothes set out the night before, so that it, no matter when he got the call, everything would be ready to go. If he were called during the night, and then also, of course, everything you do, people are watching you and trying to second guess you and question. But just so many things you can't, you know, tell people you're you're on to or what you're what you're chasing down. Uh, but you do have to be very thorough and very fair. Okay, I have another call here, Michael. Okay. And she's coming. She's coming here inside Madame Perry's salon with us. Uh, this is the uh, host of Everything Relationships. And my BFF, Kenya Colbert. Kenya, come on in and talk to Michael. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm doing wonderfully. How are you? I am well. I'm enjoying the interview. I just had to jump in and just kind of sit in and grab me a cushion next to you guys. So I could get more closer <laughs> details, better details. <laughs> yeah, so we were just getting started, Kenya, about the because, you know, I just – I think I told you when I got this book, I was, I, I was, I think I had it all read in about 36 hours. Because you know I have to stop now and then and and uh, cook dinner for my husband and walk the dogs. But or sleep, <laughs> I read this in no time. Or sleep, yes, sleep sometimes. So, uh, so, so Michael just explained. You know, the story opens with uh, the the woman Tony and Thorn. Yeah. And uh, you know, she and her husband are on this this trip. It's supposed to be a, a romantic anniversary trip, I believe, or just a little romantic trip. And he looks up, you know, she they're looking they're they're hiking on this mountain. He gets a phone call, looks up and she's gone. 
and that's when he calls uh, for help. So get us back on the story, Michael. Well, the first suspicions actually come while he's on the phone calling 911. And, um, you know, he, he gives the initial information, and my wife has fallen and she's badly hurt. Um, but his tone is is odd to the dispatchers. He almost seems put out that they're not helping him fast enough. He's, he's irritated. Um, he, uh, at one point, insists on getting a, a rescue helicopter, which, you know, they're not going to do. It's on the side of a cliff. It's a very dangerous uh, maneuver. That's, not, that's just not how it works. Um, and, he's, and he's angry that they, won't, uh, that they won't send a helicopter. And he's arrogant. He's, he says, look, I'll, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it, which is an odd thing to say when your wife, you know, is lying there dying. And then most suspicious of all, um, they say, have you done any CPR? And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and they said, well, let's let's put you on with another dispatcher who's an expert in, in CPR, and she'll walk you through it. And they patch him in, and and she starts telling him how to do the chest compressions and the air. And he's like, yeah, 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 I did that. I did that. No, don't worry about it. And he just didn't seem to want to revive his wife. He's just, when are you going to get here? When are you going to get here? When are you going to get here? So from the very beginning, he's acting odd. And and that's what sort of set the tone for uh, the investigation that would follow. Okay, so, yeah, so just this attitude. And, you know, you can say, some people will say, well, you know, we all respond to a situation and, you know, we have different ways. But something like that. I think you would certainly show a lot more emotion, not impatience with the with the uh, people, but you would be, you know, you would be, yes, I'm doing this now. I've done the compressions. I've done so and so. You would be on it more. Um, there would be a different kind of emotion altogether. So, um, so they don't get taken. Uh, they don't get help right away. He had to stay there several hours, didn't he, or overnight? Yes, because you know what what he, they did was this is a a, a trail a very popular trail that hike that you take but they went off the trail and they went off the trail almost a mile and they went down a very steep rugged area and and keep in mind this is now dark and it's dark in the rocky mountains Mm -hmm. and and uh you know he's on he's at the bottom of this cliff in the middle of the night he's a mile or two off the trail um you know he's trying to explain where he is he tries to start a fire but there's you know the ranger who who knows it like the back of his hand really has a hard time finding him and and a lot of the the 911 call are going back and forth and and Harold is becoming increasingly irritated that this ranger is not getting there uh in time but it's another one of those red flags they go, why you know these this, she's Tony's 50 I can't remember Harold's about the same age you know these aren't kids what why are they wandering off the trail so it's another mm-hmm. one of those little kind of trouble signs very early on yeah, because as I understand, you know, they go up this trail. It's Deer Mountain. Um, he's got this plan. They're going to stay. Yeah, it's, I think it was you said Stanley Hotel. Um, yeah. And yes, a lot of my a lot of my call a lot of my guests that have to do with the the, the horror world of a genre of writing. Um, you know, they talk about events and and things they have once a year at Stanley Hotel. So it's, yeah, very very popular place. So they're in. Um, so they're there, and then they're going to go out. They have lunch. And then they're going to go on this hike starting sometime around 3-ish o'clock and then have dinner reservations for about 7 at a nice restaurant, which anybody would tell you. Now, most women are not going to want to just barely get back in time to freshen up from a hike to go to a nice restaurant. You know, we want to have time to really look good. You know, we always want we want to look good, and we want our man to be, you know, be proud of how we look and, and get all dolled up. Uh, and plus, she had two, she'd had knee surgeries. I mean, she seemed like more of an active athletic woman, but she'd had a couple of knee surgeries. And yeah, she was active as a young woman. She played, yeah, she played high school basketball, but yeah, she had two Two knee surgeries, and it's an interesting nuance. The, the, the woman, uh, the prosecutor in the case was a woman, and, and you don't often see that a lead prosecutor is a woman in a 
federal murder case. But she made that very point, and she said, Tony, God bless her, loved her lipstick, and used that as uh, evidence against Terrell, something I'm, I can assure you no male prosecutor would have thought of, which is why would she be out in the middle of the, the woods? Um, she does. She did her hair that morning. She put on her lipstick. She, she did not dress for a long, arduous hike, um, and now it's dark. And so the whole thing was just not making a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, and another good point too with the lipstick, and and having her hair done, but having the lipstick on, was that it was supposed to be you know very um, pink, like a very fashionable color of pink, a little bright, and um, excuse me, and they were saying you know if he really did CPR on her, why was her lipstick on, fresh, not messed up, and there was none on him? Exactly, um, she should have had, he should have been covered in lipstick. Um, often when you do CPR, you break a couple of ribs because you push so hard. That did not seem to be the case. So from the very beginning, it was strange. But like you said, you know, different people react to traumatic events differently. And, and you know, I, you know I, I don't know how any of us would act. So you have to, you know, suspend that a little bit and give the guy some benefit of the doubt. And they, they did eventually find him. And uh, it's the middle of the night. And when they did find him, um, he had started a little fire, and she was dead. Um, she did not survive the, the, the fall. Oh, horrible. Okay, yeah, wow. sorry. Sorry, I got ahead of the story with that lipstick thing, because, you know, those dead giveaways. Uh, yeah, so then she doesn't, she doesn't survive the fall, of course, and that. But what gets people, I mean, there, there's all the red flags that all the people there are, are picking up on, the dispatcher, all the people involved that he calls, people involved with the rescue and uh, rescue efforts and the law enforcement there. And after they, you know, get her out of there or get her body out and somewhere, I don't remember how far it was, but somewhere along the way, Someone sends a note to the law enforcement saying, you might want to check into how his first wife died. Yeah, it was very soon, and it was an anonymous note and letter, and it was actually sent to uh, two or three agencies um, locally there. You know, the case got a little bit of attention. It actually didn't it, – it would be very, very – big news story eventually but at the time it was kind of just portrayed as a tragic fall and in, in fact that's what all the official news accounts said for about a year um, and if you read the news accounts in the very beginning you know the local stations happened on a weekend and and the local news station posted a online story saying oh you know this woman died tragically in a fall and and her local newspaper did the same thing and yet somebody either read that or knew about it personally and sent notes um, to a couple of law enforcement agencies saying, hey, this is not Harold Henthorne's first wife, and this is not the first time one of his wives died, and it's not the first time they died suspiciously. You may want to take a look. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very good clue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um I mean, I don't know if I'm leading you um, faster or jumping around too much, so let me know uh, what happened to the first wife. Well, her name was Lynn. Um, and keep in mind, Tony and Harold, they, they met on a, a Christian mingle. It's a, a Christian uh, dating website. And uh, mm -hmm. Tony is from a very, very prominent family in Mississippi, and they were mortified that she had gone on a dating website, and uh, uh, and they didn't, you know, they they were happy for her. They thought Harold was a little overbearing and obnoxious, but they were happy for her, and she seemed very happy. And they had a daughter, which was always her dream, and and you know, they they lived a very good life. And he kind of mentioned in passing, "Oh yeah, I had a wife. I'd been married before. Tony had been married before. She was divorced." And Harold said, "Yeah, I'd been married before, but she died in an accident." And 
you know, Tony's family, the Bertolets, were, 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 were nice enough to not press, and they didn't press. And that's all they knew about his first wife. She died, in an, and it sounded like a car accident, the way he described it. But they didn't press, certainly didn't research it. Well, her name was Sandra Lynn. She went by Lynn. And they had been married in the early 80s, uh, lived uh, in the Denver area, and uh, one night in 1995, um, Harold and his first wife, Lynn, were out driving in the middle of the night in a remote location when Harold reports that the tire of his car, his Jeep, was feeling kind of soft, spongy. It wasn't a blowout, but he thought the car was driving strangely. He pulled over to the side of the road and jacked up the car. And there's a whole bizarre sequence of events here involving jacks that don't work, and he used two different jacks, but eventually he gets the tires, the right front passenger side tire off. He walks around to the back of the Jeep, which is a hatchback, and he throws the spongy soft tire into the back, and he says the Jeep fell off the jack. And that's when he hears Lynn say, Harold, help me, Harold, something like that. He walks around back to the front, and the Jeep is on top of her. Somehow she managed to get herself face down on the ground under the wheel well, and she's being crushed by the Jeep. And uh, that's what kills her. Now, you can, that wasn't you, suspicious to anybody? Well, uh, and, you know, the first gentleman asked me about law enforcement, and yes. sometimes they do really good work, and sometimes they don't. And this was one of those cases where, and and this takes up a lot of my book, um, they investigated it. Um, it was Douglas County Sheriff, little sheriff's department south of Denver. They sent a young investigator, I think it was only his second death investigation, maybe his first, he had never really been trained as an investigator. He's basically a highway patrolman. Um, and he gets this cockamamie story from Harold about his wife somehow ending up under the Jeep, and maybe she went, you know, shimming under the car to get lug nuts. He didn't really know. Uh, he gave different versions of the story. Um, wow. But after five days, they cleared it as an accident. Wow. Unbelievable. Wow. That's and it was in, it was in kind of a remote area. Yeah, kind of a, a, a remote sort of area where there weren't a lot of people yeah, going by, a lot of traffic or anything. Yeah, mountain road. Um, and, you know, you see the similarities. Uh, it's the middle of the night, yeah. nobody around, just the two of them. Um, he's the only witness, uh, and uh, he gets a big insurance. Uh, payout three or four hundred thousand dollars most crimes that i mean honestly when there is no in my opinion when you see that there is little or no investigation that gives people that that mindset that they can go and do it again because they got away with it the first time so i can well, you see just, how you just hit nail, you just hit the nail on the head and and that's that is what um law enforcement said motivated Harold this yeah. time. He got away with it once. Why not try it again? Um, the money was running out, and he needed some more. He got away with it very, very easily before. Nobody questioned him very much, and so he decides to try it again. That was motivation enough. Just think about it, yeah. Wow. Do you, do you think he was the kind of person too that thought that he out that his plan was so clever that he just outsmarted them that he thought yeah. you know his he was certainly yes. of a superior intellect. Well, he yes, and you know he has a master's degree and he's a, a trained geologist, so he thinks he's a pretty smart guy. He's a big talker. People always talk about him being a big talker, and you know he he uh, did not get charged the first time. And the second time, the first investigator, um, and it's, it's sort of the way the National Park Service, uh, rangers don't just tell you to put out your fires they and, and, and rescue people. They're also trained investigators. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, Ranger Faraday, the guy who had to trudge out there in the middle of the night and, and get Harold, showed up at his house a, a day or two later as the initial investigator. And Harold thought he was, he called him Barney Fife. He thought he was just an idiot. And, I was thinking Barney Fife. I really yeah, was thinking he used, yeah, he used wow. that very word. You know, and you can imagine, you know, <laughs> Ranger on his hat and all that, and, and he just had no respect for this guy whatsoever. And, and yeah, that was a, a, a theme. What Harold didn't understand is that the Park Service works in cooperation with the FBI, and there aren't a lot of Barney mm-hmm. Fife with the FBI, and, and he met his match. Good, good, good. Good, good. I think I the think Barney Fife was, was the first one. Yeah. Sorry. Well, yeah, it really was. But he kept calling the, the, the other guys with the parks, the park ranger Faraday. He kept calling him Barney Fife. Faraday was no Barney Fife. Mm, no, he yeah. was a very um, – look, he knew, and, you know, not to give away too much, but there was a big clue they found in um, in Harold's car. By the way, another Jeep. He seemed fixated on Jeep, same kind of car that fell on his first wife. He was driving uh, – well, he sold that and got a new one. It's just it's very hey, cheapy. Everybody's, uh, got a, find, everybody's got something lucky. Yeah, they did find everybody the Everybody's got a lucky talisman. That is yeah. something yeah. you know, so You're lucky underwear, you're lucky Jeep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but there was a clue, and it was something, and maybe we can leave that one out, and you could read the book and find out. But it was something that also kind of – it wasn't physical evidence, but it was another another red flag piece of evidence that uh, that put them wow, hot on the case. This is very intriguing, honestly. That's, it's just amazing that the, um, the arrogance of that person that he actually – and he tried the exact same thing the exact same way – Again, nothing changed, nothing, even down to the insurance policy. And how long, I'm I'm sorry, I didn't read the book, so I'm just wondering, how long was he married to the wife, the second wife, the one that he had Uh, the door? Yeah, it was their 12th 12th wedding anniversary, 12 years. Wow. That is just horrible. Okay. And and let me just say right now, this is, I'm sorry, Kenya, since you just mentioned that. Let me just say, too, um, I'm talking with true crime journalist and author and television personality Michael Fleeman about his newest, I mean, hot off the press book right now, The Black Widower. Um, And if you want to call in and talk with Michael, the number is 646-716-9922. That's 646-716-9922. A toll-free call in the continental U.S., and you can also pick up a copy of Black Widow. Or I was saying earlier to Michael that, you know, it's your favorite bookseller. But, you know, if you're going to buy it online, a very, very cool place, and I think most book lovers know this, um, would be Powell's, Powell's Bookstore in Portland. So you can buy from them online. Okay. Wow. So, okay, cool. so back to, back to the story. So, um, yeah, Michael, this, this, is, this show is just going by so fast. Um so, yeah, so he has one. And both of these women just seemed like very, very nice women. You know, just very intelligent, good-hearted, kind, who sort of got into a marriage, you know, on good faith because he, he put on all his, you know, um, his best and, and uh, wooed them and, and courted them. And uh, not that they were stupid, but they were, they, you know, I think their hearts were, were willing to believe him because yeah. he put himself out they, as like, they, I'm they a Christian a man, I work yeah, they had a couple of things in common. Both they, they kind of looked the same. They're both redheads, um, and mm-hmm. they were both very Christian women, um, very giving, very very lived lives of faith and built around church and 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 not just going to church, but but giving back and and helping people. Lynn's yeah. first wife was a social worker. Uh, Tony was a doctor. You know, very giving women, very giving women, and. Two women who always saw the best in everybody, which is, you know, and I'm a, a cynical journalist, and I I, I, I I admire that in people who can look at people and only see the good. But the flip side of that is I think there's a certain naivete, and they right. don't see certain things, or they see them and they rationalize them. And there were certainly a lot of trouble signs uh, with Harold, especially in the second marriage. Um, but Tony 
you know, again, insisted on seeing the best. And, and you know, she, she had had one divorce. She didn't want to get a second divorce. They now have right. a daughter, little girl, six, seven years old. And, and so, you know, she really wanted to make this marriage work. But he he, he played on their faith, which I to me is the most heinous thing on earth. And, yeah. you know, he met her on a Christian dating site. Um, um, and he sort of, you know, if you look at his, his profile on the dating site, and he talks about being a man of God and all these things. And, and, and to say that, not because he believes it, but because he's trying to rope in, you know, sugar mama is, is, is really odious. And, um, and these are the things that kind of came out afterwards. Uh, but the, the two women, they, were, they had very, very similar personalities, very giving, very loving, very forgiving, and yet also, I think, a little naive. Michael, um, can I ask you, do you, did you find out from the second family, the, um, her, his second wife, the family, did they interact with the family at all? Were they close enough that she could confide in her family? Or was that one of those situations where you kind of alienate them and, and conquer, you know, conquer and divide, yeah. keep them apart? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I, I interviewed um, her parents, both her parents um, and her brother, and this was a point of contention in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, now, keep in mind, she was in her late 30s when she got married. She was no kid. She was a doctor, right. you know, so it's not that they can say too much. This is a very genteel southern family. They're from Mississippi um, yes. and speak very, very thick um, southern accents and have a very, just a very strong sense of propriety and decorum and, 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 they're very reluctant to confront, but certain events happened in the marriage. Yeah, yeah, certain events happened in the second marriage that got them very, very concerned. Uh, Harold would start isolating Tony, which is very exactly. classic and abusive. And yeah. and they would call from Mississippi to Denver, and he would listen in on the phone calls. Um, he controlled all the money. Um, yeah, wouldn't he? Wouldn't let her talk to her mother one-on-one um and at the same time tony was you know it was it was irritating to her parents because she would always seem to sort of take harold's side and kind of mom butt out was her defending him yeah yeah i think more defending her choices and i think she was i think she was defensive about mary you know it's like you really want to admit you're two-time you know met two two loser guys and and so exactly you know and so her mother would Cry a little bit, and she, you know, her mother's a nurse, and her father's a millionaire oil man, and so they're not shrinking violets. But you know, she she was feisty, and she, you know, she, when she had to be, she would really fight back. And so she, you know, she she was very defensive um, of this up until the very end. And I think that's probably in addition to the money. You know, they always say the the most dangerous time for a woman is when she's about to break up. Um, with a man, yeah. and there's certain indications mm-hmm. that she may uh, have been about ready to leave him. She started separating their finances and, and uh, mm-hmm. made her very vulnerable. Um, and there was an incident, and I, we can talk about it, but there was an incident in which it appears he tried to kill her uh, before and failed. Wow. Yeah, wow. when the family found out about it. And again, it was it was written off as an accident. Um and he got away with it a second time. And and finally the family, you know, the family said enough is enough. But, you know, I, I interviewed a, her mother and father, and, you know, these are two very, very strong people, very successful, strong people, and they're both in tears uh, mm-hmm. talking to me, saying that they're going to forever feel guilty that they didn't do enough, that... They shouldn't have been so kind. They shouldn't have been, um, you know, so willing to let her have her way. And they, they, you know, and it's sad and it's heartbreaking. They really blame themselves for not doing more. That is heartbreaking. I mean, honestly, but you said it earlier, Michael, and, and I can relate to that part of being in a relationship where you really do 
even though sometimes it's that thing that I used to um, say when we were kids, like, I might can fight my sister all day or my brother, but you're not allowed to pick on them. You know, that's, and that's that thing in that relationship when people start, because it reflects you. It reflects on you, basically, when you're talking about your mate. When people say, well, oh, my gosh, you're you're allowing him to do these things to you, or why aren't you doing anything about it, that defense mechanism jumps in, and, and then you find yourself maybe defending certain actions that don't seem that big unless you know how the story ends. So she did not know how the story would end, in my opinion, and it might have seemed as if – it's okay to to protect or defend myself because I can handle it. And sometimes we can't handle it. Not even women. I mean, people in general. Sometimes those situations that mm-hmm. we think we can control don't always end up going the way we think that they're going to go because you can't read the other person's mind. So I really I was just thinking about her parents and thinking how any parent would feel as if they should have seen the signs or they should have known better. That's just any parent. And there's just sometimes there's you might see the signs of your kid being on drugs, but you don't know when they're doing it. You're not with them all the time. You can try to stop them, but you can't keep them a hostage. So I don't know. It's just I hate that they do feel that way, but I can understand feeling that guilt. I can understand that. Yeah, and like I think it's probably too because she had a daughter. You know, she may have been she reluctant a daughter. to break now, up the family. I mean, to her parents' credit, they were able to channel that guilt um, in a very positive way. And Good. one of the one of the things they did is they basically served as deputy investigators, and they very quietly and very methodically built evidence against Harold, acting like they were still supportive, that they're the supportive grandparents, and they'd visit. Meanwhile, everything he said and did, they would take notes and pass it on to the FBI uh, secret. Wow. Ah, yeah. That's clever. Um, Let me stop and say this right now, if you don't mind. If you are just tuning in, my guest is Michael Fleeman, true crime writer. Michael Fleeman is an award-winning journalist, best-selling author of, of what, 12 books published by St. Martin's Press. Uh, He's also a New York Times bestseller for Stranger in My Bed and uh, Love You Madly and Seduced by Evil. I think I've read, as I look at the list, I've I've read all but two of your books, Michael. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a Fle- I'm a Fleeman fan. Um, <laughs> you specialize in covering. <laughs> he is. A longtime reporter for Associated Press covering criminal justice in courts, including the L.A. riots, O.J. Simpson trials, Timothy McVeigh, Oklahoma City bombing trial, and your Simpson trial coverage earned a nomination for a Pulitzer Prize. Wow. Just thought I'd put that in there. Mr. Fleeman, and two, if you ever see, let me tell you, I see Michael. I see you all the time. Uh, you've been, you as a public speaker and a commentator, uh, you appear regularly on Entertainment Tonight, E2 Hollywood Story, Inside Edition, HLN Showbiz Tonight, uh, CNN, uh, True TV, Investigation Discovery Channel, uh, Oxygen, and of course you're going to be on the Escape Channel's uh, Deep Undercover soon. HLN, do you know my friend uh, Art Harris? Um. I, I think him? I have been on shows with him, as a matter of fact, uh, for uh, over the years. Um, but this would be like five, oh gosh, this might have been five, ten years ago. Yeah, I met him at a, 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 at a Nancy Grace taping in um, a sort of show, Swift Justice, in Atlanta years ago. And uh, and he's been on, he was on one of my first shows. But uh, yeah, so, okay. So I just, I just had to give my Michael Fleeman promo right there. And we're talking <laughs> about his new book. The Black Widower. Okay, Michael. Because I don't want to give it also because I want to I want to tell people more about you, but I also don't want to I also want to keep us from giving away too much of the story because I want people to buy the book, uh, The Black exactly. Widower. So I think you know too. I think the one thing that was that was uh, Harold Henthorne's undoing was that with the first wife's accident. Yes, he got her in a remote place. It was dark where he had plenty of chance at night. People wouldn't see what happened, but 
um, he just happened to really luck out that the people that did come to help, um, the the law enforcement personnel, were not that well trained. You know, I'm not saying they were bad people. They just weren't trained. They just didn't know certain things, and they just, you know, the one of the guy had him in a car road. They just talked to him, but they never actually interviewed him. So um, a lot of mistakes were made. A lot of evidence was not collected. And so he just got off so well. But then I'm sure he thought he would do it again. But when, when he caught him with the uh, at the park, when he was at Deer Mountain, he didn't count the fact that he was dealing with federal – this happened on federal property, federal lands. He's going to be dealing with federal agents, and they don't play. And they don't uh, be they don't in a position without really being They have vast, really they have being vast resources. Um, oh, and, yeah. You know, something – Something the Douglas County Sheriff's Department couldn't do in the first case, but the FBI could do, which is hop on a plane and interview a lady in Texas or Mississippi or wherever. And that's what mm-hmm. they did. Um, and, uh, you know, that they could um, write a subpoena to get his cell phone records, which was very important, to find out what was on his computer, um, you know, to do these kinds of things. But, I, you know, I do want to stress um, and I, I read this, wrote this book rather, um, kind of in midstream. The trial had not even started yet. This was not a slam dunk case um, because, and we've all, you know, we've been seeing all the OJ stuff lately. Um, and I remember that case with so much physical evidence. There was no physical evidence. There's no That's video. True. There are no eyewitnesses. Um, there's no confession. Um, there's, there's nothing, uh, no, no written statement that, uh, you know, he's proclaiming that he did this. It was a very, very difficult case, uh, to build against him. And it was a circumstantial case. Now they tell jurors that circumstantial evidence has the same weight as direct evidence, but we all know that's not entirely true. And so it took them years years to build this case against him. And in the end, and as you read the the trial section of this, you're really going to find that it was sort of Harold's personality, his his way of reacting, um, the things he did that that played against him. He was his own worst enemy because they didn't have the smoking gun. Um, and Mm -hmm. the biggest thing they had was the first wife's death. And even up to the last minute, his lawyer said, no, 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 don't let that evidence into the trial. That has nothing to do with the second wife. Um, That was investigated, and he was cleared. It's not fair. It's going to be prejudicial to the jury if they hear this stuff. And so it was very important for the prosecution to get in those details from the first wife's death to try to show a pattern, to try to show propensity to do this sort of thing. Um, so it was touch and go. It really was. And even with all the resources and skills of the FBI, um, not until the very last minute uh, was it clear that, that they were going to get him. That's actually very interesting because as you were um describing how this actually came about towards the end, I had to remember how you started the story. And as you were talking, I really realized there really wasn't evidence there. There really wasn't anything, as you would say, the smoking gun that that would just say, okay, yes, he did it. Just looking guilty does not, I mean, is not a reason enough to, because you don't have a defense against whatever it is that you're being charged for. That is really a hard case when you put it like that, Michael. It was, yeah. and what happened was, and I, I after this, I did a um, the the local drug task force um, in Denver was nice enough to invite me out, and I, I spoke to them, and you know these were seasoned drug investigators, and they were you know and they, they their prosecutions depend on fingerprints and you know finding exactly. drugs on people and stuff, and and they said how on earth were they able to try to build a case? And I said, well, they they had to think like a writer. They had to spin a story. They had to tell a story Uh that was so compelling 
that a jury would be willing to convict. Wow. Wow. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. Wow. And that's brilliant. Yeah. Like a writer and see what would work, you know, from from a writer. Because, you know, I got to tell you, this weekend, um, my husband and I were changing out the brake pads and rotors on my car. And I'm telling him about this story, you know, and I'm going, okay, so no, I didn't do it, but I said, like, if I were to try to get down, if, I, if a lug nut rolled off, because that's what the guy said, Harold said, I was with the first wife, oh, was she, why was she under the um, car in that position? Well, I think a lug nut rolled off and she scrawled under the car to get it. But, you know, I can assure you, you know, I would not be sprawled out in that position. Get it? I would just... Leg nut rolled, you know, because you, you put them in some place where you'll keep them right beside you. I would just put a stick underneath there or something and just knock it out in front of the car. Nobody would do that, right? You, you know, that's the thing. Nobody accident. would crawl up, right? Yeah. Interesting. You want my personal my personal theory how she got underneath? This is not in the book. Yes. Um, <laughs> my personal theory is my personal theory is that she did crawl under under her own power that Harold was verbally abusive to her and scared and jittery and said you stupid you know what you dropped him you go get him you know mm. okay Harold okay okay anything you know to shut him up and she did it yeah and then that's when he, he there's some evidence that you can read about it in the book, but there's some ah. very compelling evidence that they totally ignored that that proved that suggested that he he kicked the the car off the uh, jack. But I, I think if you put it in the context of an overbearing, verbally abusive man and a yes. woman who just do anything to try to get the peace, to try to settle him down, mm-hmm. because one of the big mysteries in the first wife's death is how did she get under there? Because there were no scratches. There were no contusions. He didn't bonk her over the head. He didn't right. bonk her. Okay, so how do you? How did she get there? You know, how, how do you did convince she get... someone to go underneath a car? Gotcha. Yeah, but you've, I, you know, and you've seen couples where the wife is so beaten down and yeah. so frazzled mm-hmm. and so intent on trying to bring some bit of peace to the relationship that they will literally do anything just to quiet him down and calm him down. It's like, okay, if you want me to crawl under and get these stupid lug nuts, I'll crawl under, just stop yelling, Harold. And I, I can almost picture that. It's that kind of a relationship. Now, this is me talking. There's no right. evidence or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I I, you know, I spent a lot yeah. of time trying to figure out, how did she get under there? And, I, you know, um, uh, that's I, I still think she went under there under her own power for whatever reason. That's about the only way you could get her under there, honestly, because it's yeah. not easy to get underneath a car, even when you have it jacked up. I mean, you watch the guys working on the cars. It it really does take some maneuvering, especially if you're not on one of those little beds that can roll underneath there. Mm-hmm. So to climb under, and they, and they found her face down, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, she crawled under, but that is, and 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 so let me ask you this, and now, and I know time is kind of wrapping up, but um, this this guy is really he's got my brain kind of ticking. I'm just thinking, what type of guy was he before he married his first? Was he a loner? Was there signs that you know he had mental issues before? Was he working off of greed? Was he just a cruel human being before her? What was his life? Um, it's, yeah. It's, you know, I didn't see, you know, there were no uh, obvious um, signs in his early life, you know, an abusive father or anything like that, um, uh, no obvious uh, mental illness. Um, the the theme that everyone talks about over and over again is that he just, he's just this big, big, big talker. He's a guy who knows everything about everything, and, and is is loud and obnoxious. A lot of people called him a used car salesman. Wow. He's mm-hmm. very, uh, you know, in the pejorative sense, and very overbearing and and very overpowering. Um, and he had to have a, a woman who was, 
you know, and I, I interviewed a yeah. lady, he dated in between these two wives, and, and she just thought he was, oh, my God, all he'd talk about himself, and, you know, it just wouldn't be quiet. And either you're completely turned off by that kind of a big personality, or, you know, if you need, I don't know, you know, I, I, I both of these women seem to be attracted to it, but super overpowering, overbearing, had to just be, you know, he sat in on Tony's uh, meetings. She was an ophthalmologist at her at her eye clinic, and he was like a husband. Oh, he sat oh, in on the right. financial meeting. Um, wow. You know, uh, so it's it's that sort of thing that just, and by the time they had the kid, you know, he just, he had to make every single decision about every single little thing that ever went on. Um he also, by the way, planned both of the weddings. He picked out all the music. He picked out, you know, everything that was going to go. He had to, he had to decide how everything was going to go. Even though Tony's parents were paying for the darn wedding, he made all the decisions. He told them what was going to happen. He didn't pay a dime, and, and yet he had to be uh, in charge, this, this kind of big, arrogant talker. So he set the tone of what the relationship was going to be like from that day forward. And, and, and of course, as you said, you know, opposites attract in this case, in these cases, they went against them. But sometimes people find that attractive, that aggressiveness, that um, go out and, and handle things. But something about this just tells me, though, as much as these women were, this guy is as obnoxious as he sounds. There was something that made them fall in love with him as well. So he might have been a different guy behind closed doors in the beginning when he was dating that wooing part, and they were just trying to get him back to that part. Or maybe they yeah. Well, that. read read the you book, know, and you'll you'll see yeah you'll see his his dating profile, and he really sounds like a catch. You know, I mean, yeah. Although I when you read yeah. it now, he sounds like an arrogant jerk. But you know, look, <laughs> he, he likes long walks on the beach, and he likes going boating, and and right. you know, he'll he'll take charge, and uh, he'll protect you, and he'll do nothing but fun stuff, and they'll go to Hawaii, and they'll go camping, and they'll go hiking, and they'll. You know, do all these things. Uh, he's everybody's friend. He gets along. You know, he'll talk to anybody. He's great at parties. You know, uh, uh, he's smart. Uh, you know, and he's and he's and he's a good church-going Christian. You know, and and you read this and you're like, oh, wow, he's you know too good to be true. But and he'd be the first one to agree that he was too good to be true. You know, he he was he he had a, a very big ego. <laughs> Right, that's a narcissist all, right. all day long, though. That really is. That's their <laughs> mo. Everything is about them, and 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 you and they pull you into that. You know, you just watch people with that personality. It's almost obnoxious but mesmerizing at the same time. Yeah, in Hollywood, we call them celebrities. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, and yeah, you can't read. You know, Michael's got his his uh, the, the the profile that that uh, Harold did on a Christian mingle dating site. It's like, oh wait, what? So, oh yeah, he put on a show. He 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 brought them into the web. Uh, Michael, thank you so much. Again, grateful to have. Michael Fleeman. Michael, you know, uh, I talked about having rock stars on the show, uh, but you're such a rock star in your genre, and I'm just so grateful to have you back on here again. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Don't forget to get the Black Widower, and you know, the the website's michaelfleeman.com. If you look on all of my social media for Madam Perry, uh, Instagram, or, you know, last time you were on, Michael, I was talking to you about getting getting with the program on your social media, but, uh, and, and I think you've done, you've done better, so, but I'll share with you all of Michael's social media and his website, <laughs> and also I uh, will get a link to buy the Black Widower on Powell's uh, bookstore's uh, website, so I can make that just easy for everybody just to click on it and buy. This book will not disappoint you will be we just we just gave you just a just a little bit there are so many deep layers um and trails in this book that you will just be mesmerized and look for him on deep undercover on the new escape network and of course like i said anytime i see you on tv every week somewhere michael but thank you so much as tomorrow night michael if you're around I just got word during the show 
that tomorrow night my guest will be Lita Ford. She is the queen of metal. She was the first female guitar shredder. You know who she is? She really is a rock star. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And with the runaways, and she's back on to, you know, she took off about 10 years or so while she was raising her children, and now she's back on the gig, back on tour. And, uh, yeah, in fact, they... Her her uh, her publishers tried to get her in tonight, but I said, no, this is Michael Fleeman night. I can't move Michael for anybody. But she um, messaged back in while we were talking that the little beep was her was her publicist saying, okay, how about tomorrow night? So tomorrow night, Lita Snyder, the I mean, uh, Lita Snyder, what am I saying? I'm getting all my characters. Lita Ford, Lita Ford, Runaways, uh, the Lita Ford band, Queen of Metal, uh, Shredder. She will be my guest on Madame Perry Salon tomorrow night. So, Michael, feel free to call back in, and I will have, as I said, all the all the uh, links to all your social media and where to buy the Black Widower and all your books on all of my social media. And uh, any parting words, Michael? No, but thank you. This is uh, my favorite show. Do and uh, yeah. pleasure. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.